and I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. And I want you to hear these verses, and then I want you to kind of stick them in the back of your mind, because we're going to come back to them uh, towards the end of the sermon. Uh, John 17, this is a pretty famous passage where Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's praying for the church, for the people of God. And this is what he says, starting in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as I said, we're going to take the rest of this summer and we are going to be preaching through our core beliefs here at Northridge Life Church. If you were to go to our website, northridgelife.org, you would find a a little tab that you can click um, that says Statement of Beliefs. And if you clicked on that, you would you would find 10 different subheadings listing out and very briefly explaining what our core beliefs are uh, here at Northridge Life. Those consist of what we believe about the scriptures, what we believe about the Trinity, uh, God, the Father, Jesus Christ, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, regeneration, the gospel, the kingdom, the church And finally, the consummation or what will happen uh, in the end times. And we're going to take the rest of the summer one week at a time to take each one of these core beliefs and flesh them out and let you know what it is that we as a church believe and what it is that we stand for. Don't you think that it's important that we know what it is we believe? You think that's important? Um, And not only that, but we want you to be able to articulate what we believe. And we want you to know why we believe it and why you believe it or why you should believe it. Right? And not just because your mama told you, not just because a pastor told you, but because God's word, God's truth has told you. And so we're going to start this morning by looking at what it is that we believe about the scriptures or the Bible or God's holy word. And I think this is a vital place to start since all of our core beliefs are founded explicitly on God's word and what God's word has to say to us. And so, um, We believe that the scriptures are are God's authority um, given to us. And we also recognize, though, more than ever, um, that the authority of God's word is being challenged, is being disbelieved. And, And I hate to say that not just in the secular world is this happening, but even oftentimes within the church. So... We here at Northridge, we want to be absolutely clear on what we believe about God's Word, about the Bible. We believe in the sufficiency of God's Word. We believe in the necessity of God's Word. We believe 
in the clarity of God's word and we believe in the authority of God's word. Those are often termed the attributes of scripture and we believe and affirm all of those. So let me just briefly tell you what we're talking about. The sufficiency of scripture means that scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. In other words, what we mean is that we don't need new revelation from God or from some other source in order to be able to know and to trust God and to believe the gospel. So, um, so Joseph Smith, right, was the founder of Mormonism, and he claimed uh, that he received special revelation from God that led him to um, a, a buried book of golden plates, which he subsequently tr- translated then into the Book of Mormon, and, and he claimed. Um, that this new revelation, this, this book that he had written, had the same level of authority as the scriptures had. And this is not a new phenomenon. Many people over the years have claimed to have received new or special revelation about God, but we trust in the sufficiency of God's word as revealed in his word. So listen, if if God if God told you something that is contrary to what his word said, then that was not God speaking to you, right? God will not contradict his word ever. His word is absolutely sufficient in all that we need. We believe in the necessity of God's word. What that means is that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will. But it's not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. So we can look around, we can see the majesty of God's creation, and we can know in our hearts that God exists, that He's real, as Romans 1 makes clear to us. But to know the good news of the gospel Um, to know what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, to know who we are in Christ, we rely absolutely on God's Word, on the Scriptures. That means that if you want your family and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers to know Jesus, then you need to show them Jesus in the Scriptures, in God's Word. You need to introduce them to the Word of God. We believe... We believe in the clarity of Scripture. That means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. What does that mean? That means that you don't have to go to seminary to read your Bible and to know the Bible and to know the gospel revealed in God's Word. Are there some difficult sections in the Bible? Absolutely. Are there difficult passages, some that are hard to understand? Absolutely, there are. But do you need an advanced theological degree to understand the gospel and follow Jesus? No, you do not. Listen, if a group of fishermen from backwater Nazareth 
can follow Jesus, then you and I can know the scriptures and follow Jesus, right? Sometimes we, we use our lack of, of theological education um, as an excuse to not really open our Bibles, to not, to not spend time studying or pursuing the Word of God. But the clarity of Scripture means that God's Word is for you. It's for you. It's written for you. Whether you're Ph.D. or second grade dropout, it doesn't matter. His Word is for you. It's for all of us. And we affirm that. And lastly, we believe in the, the authority of Scripture Meaning that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So we wholeheartedly believe and affirm each one of these four attributes. That God's word is sufficient and necessary and clear and authoritative. Uh, We believe that uh, here at Northridge Life Church. Uh, But this morning, I want to take some time and I really want to think about and expound on the authority of God's Word because I believe that in our current culture, in our current climate, that that is what is under most, uh, most attack. And so we believe that God's Word is authoritative. And so we believe that because we believe that the Bible is actually God's Word. It's, it's God's Word, right? You might say, well, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's kind of obvious, you know. We knew that. But, but listen, we believe that the Bible, each word is literally God's Word to us. And it's not some type of approximation of what God was wanting to or trying to say to us. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine uh, if my parents, my parents are missionaries who we support. They live in Austria and serve the Lord in Austria. Imagine if they wrote a letter to the church, to you guys, right? And they wanted to let you know how ministry was going and how they were doing and what you could be praying for. There would be a big difference uh, between me saying, hey, uh, my parents wrote a letter, and uh, they said everything is going really well. Um, they said the ministry in Austria is good. They're really excited um, about the, their opportunity to minister to the Muslim refugees. Um, they have they have this, this, and this prayer request, and here's what they're struggling with. And uh, they also they want to thank you and bless you for supporting them. Uh, and, and that's basically it. There would be a really big difference between me telling you that and me actually bringing the letter in here and reading it to you, right? Um, The former would be my attempt to convey what it was that my parents were wanting to say to you, right? And that's what a lot of people today believe that the Bible is, that the Scriptures are. They believe that the Bible is merely a human attempt to relay God's message to His people and can therefore contain errors and not always be completely trustworthy and can sometimes even contradict itself. And listen, church, we 
here at Northridge absolutely reject that idea. Let me give you a couple scriptures um, that we believe wholeheartedly, uh, starting in Second Timothy, Second uh, Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen. Uh, this is a well-known verse. It says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness." Um, the Greek word that Paul uses here, the word theopneustos, um, does not mean that the scriptures were merely inspired by God, as in they were his idea, but they literally mean that the scriptures were breathed out by God. So Paul is making the point that scripture is literally God's word in written form. That's what makes it profitable for all things, as Paul goes on to say. So every time you open your Bible, every time without exception, you are reading words coming directly from the heart and the mind of God. That should, that should change the way that you look at Scripture and the way that you view Scripture. Second Peter one twenty one says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is referring here to the prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. And he says that though they were spoken by men, the ultimate source of scripture is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is in part a mystery to us, but this is how each book of the Bible can take on the characteristics and the personality of the author who's writing it, but still simultaneously be completely and absolutely God's word to us. Yes, God used human beings to write his word down, and these people had different personalities and they had different styles as they were writing his word down but it is completely his word that he transmits to us by his holy spirit without error so if the scriptures then are god's literal words to us not not just an attempt or an approximation but god's literal words to us then we can trust wholeheartedly that his word, that the Bible, is absolutely true, absolutely true, and without any error. This is what theologians would call the inerrancy of Scripture. That there are no mistakes, there are no errors, no contradictions in God's word. So that means when, when we read passages like Romans 8, 1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus... A great promise. We don't, have to, we don't have to sit and think and ponder and say, man, that, that sounds really good. I, I hope that's true. You know, it, it, would be, it would be great if that were true. You know, here's, here's, here's hoping that, you know, we'll get to the end of my life and find out that God really meant that or that's actually what he was saying. Right? We don't have to do that because... Because God's word is true. God who never lies. Titus 1, 2. God for whom it is impossible to lie. Hebrews 16. God said it in his word and that makes it true. 
Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Every word. Now, that can be hard to relate to sometimes because that's not true of you and me, right? That's, a, that's not a human reality. Uh, we say things that are untrue all the time, right? Uh, we lie. We exaggerate. We make mistakes. We make promises that we do not or cannot or do not intend to keep. But that is not who God is. God is not like us. God only and always speaks the truth. Every word proves true. That means that you won't find mistakes in the Bible. You won't find errors. You won't find contradictions. You won't find false promises. Listen, everything promised in Scripture to believers is true and will be fulfilled. You should be excited about that. Listen, church, because the Scriptures are God's Word, because they're authoritative, because they are absolutely true and without error, that means that God's Word is the absolute and highest authority for the life of a believer, for a follower of Jesus. So everything we say, everything we preach, everything we sing... Everything we prophesy, everything we feel impressed on us by the Holy Spirit, all of us must, all of it must be measured and weighed according to the Word of God. All of it. Listen, I've, I've read some really good books over the years by people uh, that, that I really look up to, uh, by people that I admire. But listen, those are not my authority. I've, I've talked to many people over the years that are much wiser than I am. Men and women who, who I respect and esteem very much. People who love and are following, pursuing Jesus. But those people are not my authority. The elders here at Northridge Life are not your authority. What do I mean by that? Um, it's true that God has made us stewards of His authority. But listen, the authority that we are called to be stewards of is not our authority. It's God's authority that comes from His Word. Right? So, you know, if, if Daryl Edwards approaches you after the service and says, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm one of your elders and, and uh, you, should, you should listen to me and respect me. And I, from now on, I want you to give me 10% of your paycheck every, every month without fail. Um, right? That would, be, that would be an abuse of the authority that we are called to steward, right? So if, if he ever says that to you, please come let us know. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll take care of that. Um, but I've, listen, I've talked to so many people over the years that are, that are doing things they shouldn't be doing, but then they say, well, God told me. You ever heard someone say that? God told me. Well, well, listen, listen, look what his word says right here, which is explicitly contradictory to what you're saying. Well, God told me. And that's that's the argument. God told me. Listen, God will never, ever tell you anything that contradicts 
what he says in his word. Never. God's word is our absolute authority. And listen, listen, this has major, major implications for how we live our lives. Huge. So can we talk about that for a few minutes? I'm going to anyway, so whether you want me to or not. Um, First of all, this means that our professions of faith in Jesus must be accompanied by obedience to the whole word of God. The whole word. That's not optional. That's not something that we can take or leave. See, so many people today, they want to associate themselves with Jesus, right? But they don't necessarily want to do what he tells them to do in his word. You know, I, yeah, I, I want to go to heaven. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I love Jesus and, and I, want to, I want to do that. But, but I also want to live in a way that puts me first. Uh, I want to pursue comfort. I want to pursue wealth. I want to pursue the praise and esteem of the people around me. I want to enjoy my sexuality with whomever, wherever, whenever I want to. And I want to do this, this, and this. And, but yeah, I want, I want Jesus too because I love Jesus. Right? Jesus says in John 14, He says, John 14, 15, plain and simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, how many of you want to follow Jesus? Seriously. That's a serious question. Um, It's a serious question. This is a serious thing to think about. If you want to follow Jesus, then submitting yourself completely to His Word is not optional. It's not something we can take or leave. Can't do it. This, this, is what, this would be what, what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, German theologian, pastor, this is what he would term cheap versus costly grace. Right? Cheap grace says, you know what? I can live however I want to. And I can do whatever I want. Because I have grace. And grace covers me. And grace takes away my sin, so it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. I can, I can live my life and pursue what I want to pursue and have a really good time. And I have this, this ticket to heaven already punched called grace, so I'm good to do whatever I feel like doing. Um, that's what he calls cheap grace. Costly grace, on the other hand, recognizes, just as, just as Bonhoeffer says, That when Jesus calls a man, he calls him to come and die. When Jesus calls someone, he calls him to come and die. Submitting to God's word means dying to ourselves. Right? But listen. Here's a secret. If you don't die, you can't be resurrected. Right? If you aren't crucified with Christ, you cannot be raised with Christ. If we claim to follow Jesus, we must submit to and obey all of His Word and not just the parts that we like or the parts that resonate with us. 
right? We must be obedient to all of it. This also means, this is, this is huge for us today. This also means that in our present day lives, we must see and view and interact with the culture around us through the lens of God's word and not the other way around. Not the other way around. As the culture around us is changing and has changed, how, how many of you have noticed that culture is changing? Have you noticed that? I mean, I, I, would, I would love to go back 60 years and try to explain to my grandparents then some of the things we're living with today. I can guarantee you they would, they would laugh some of it off. I mean, the, the technological advances, the, the age of social media that we live in, um, it, it would be absolutely mind-boggling to them. Um, so many things that we're experiencing today have, have changed radically. Even, even in the last few years, it's, it's mind-boggling some of the things that we're living in today. Um, so culture is changing. We agree on that. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, as, as culture has changed... We as Christians have been tempted to change or disregard or tweak God's word in order to better fit into the cultural norms. Anyone experience that? It's not just me, right? I mean, this, I, I think this is a legitimate temptation that many Christians face today, right? We want to we wanna fit into culture and so we may need to kind of change what we're saying about the Bible or, or what we believe about the Bible so that we can, you know, be up with the times a little bit better. Can I give you some examples of, of where I'm seeing this? Um, uh, let's, let's start with this. Um, this, is a, this is a big one. Um, the Bible, God's Word, is absolutely clear that God created sexuality and sex to be enjoyed and celebrated within the context of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, period. That's it. That's it. That's what God's Word says and makes absolutely clear. Now, by the way, as an aside, God commands this not to ruin your fun, but so you'll actually have more fun. I don't know if you knew that. But he, he designed it that way so that you could experience more and deeper intimacy and fulfillment with someone you're absolutely committed to and covenanted to and bound together one flesh. That's God's perfect design. Now, in, in my parents' generation... In my grandparents, definitely in my grandparents' generation and, and great-grandparents' generation, um, culture generally agreed with this. In general. There are always exceptions. But in general, you know, culture was on board with this, Christian or not, right? Well, today, culture tells us something a little bit different, right? Have you noticed that? Um, it says that restricting yourself to just one sexual partner is boring, right? I mean, you're, miss, you're missing out on the fun you could be having. It, it says that waiting 
to have sex until you're married, it's old-fashioned. It's outdated. It's behind the times. And not only that, it may even be detrimental to your good and normal sexual development. Right? Um, many years ago, uh, I, I remember being a part of a conversation um, uh, where one, um, one woman, uh, professing believer, was speaking to another woman, also a professing believer, and was, was encouraging her and telling her that she needed to, uh, you know, she needed to move in with her boyfriend, that, you know, they needed to be sexually active together, and that that would be a good and a helpful thing for their relationship. Again, this is one professing Christian speaking to another professing Christian. And so, but here's my question, as I was hearing this, here's my question. Where are you getting those ideas from, right? I mean, what's, what's your source material there? Uh, is that coming from God's Word? No. I hope, I hope we can agree on that. Um, so the Bible, we oftentimes think, needs to, be, needs to be tweaked a little bit, right? Because we don't live in those times anymore. These are, these are modern times. We're, we're not old-fashioned and prudish like our grandparents were, Right? Get with the times, get with the culture. Let's, let's try to bring the Bible along to where the, the culture has gotten to, right? That's the temptation. That's what we do a lot of times. 1 Corinthians 6 says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexually immoral referring to all sexuality outside of the marriage covenant. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6. Listen, guys, that should, that should be an alarm bell to our culture today. Let me give you another example. Um, how about, how about some, of, some of the ways that Christians in Texas feel about refugees? Right? This, this is kind of a hot topic these days. Um, if you've watched the news at all, uh, you're familiar um, that, that this is a big issue. Um, but to be quite honest, a lot of us don't want them here. And we don't want anything to do with them, right? America first! That's in the Bible somewhere, right? We, uh, we see them as a threat. They're a threat to our safety. They're a threat to our comfort. They are a threat to our security. And so the less of them that are around, the better. Man, if, if, if y'all could just see what's happening in my parents' church in Austria. I've no, I, I know we've told you about it before, uh, but there have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Muslim refugees just streaming into their cities. They're literally everywhere, right? And a lot of people don't like that. And even some of the Christians don't like that. Well, what if one of them's a terrorist? What if one of them comes in the... Because they're starting to come to the church now. What if one of them comes in and blows us up? Well, what if they do? I mean, what better way to go and meet Jesus than faithfully proclaiming the gospel... 
to the people that need to hear it, right? Um, but they're everywhere. But this is what's happening. Muslims that would never hear the gospel where they live are hearing the gospel and they're getting saved. And now they're going back to their countries and they're preaching the gospel there. And they're getting saved over there. I mean, we should be getting excited about that. But here we are in our comfortable lives. And you know, some of those refugees, that's, uh, you know, that, that kind of threatens my comfortable, secure, happy Christian life. I don't know if I want those people around. But where are those kinds of ideas coming from? Again, are they, are, are they coming from God's Word? Or could it be, could it possibly be that sometimes we're a little more loyal to a political ideology than we are to God's Word? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 to 19. says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's another word for refugee. Loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Listen, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have laws. I'm not saying any of that. But here's what I'm saying. We, followers of Jesus, out of all people, should be least concerned with our safety and with our comfort and with our security, and should be most concerned about showing compassion to the people around us. Amen? Amen. One more. Uh, what, about, what about our pursuit of wealth and materialism in this country? We have... Uh, We've even taken it to the point where we take a lot of scriptures and we kind of twist them and distort them to, um, to justify our pursuit of wealth and just getting more and more stuff. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 um, this is a verse we don't like to talk about very much, especially in, in our culture here. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Um, if, if you turn on your TVs um, to one of those TV preachers, I promise you, you will never hear them preach on this verse. Uh, you, you will not hear Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar or Jesse Duplantis or Kenneth Copeland or whoever, whoever that per, the person is. Uh, you will never hear them preach on this verse. This, this verse, I don't think, exists in their Bibles. But listen, again, this, this is a serious warning. This should be setting off alarm bells in the culture that we live in today that, that so... Uh, so enthusiastically chases after wealth and, and delights in just building up more and more and more stuff. And hey, if my barn's getting a little too big to hold it all, then 
man, I'm just going to tear down and build a bigger barn. I think Jesus had something to say about that. But here's my point. Okay, after, all, after all that, this, listen, this is the point. The Word of God, God's Word, not, not what the world says, is the authority for how we must live, right? And we must use God's Word to understand with and, and to engage in and to interact in the culture that we currently live in and not use culture to shape our view of God's Word, right? God's Word is our authority and it's absolutely necessary for our salvation and for us to know the gospel and to live a godly life. But, but there are a lot of people today, even, even some Christians, who would suggest that maybe the scriptures aren't really as necessary as we've been saying they are or thinking uh, that they are. Andy Stanley uh, is a popular Christian speaker, author, writer, um, evangelical Christian, a huge church, and, uh, and he preached a sermon a couple of years ago um, that brought into question the authority and the necessity of God's Word. Let me, let me read you just one quote of what he said. He said, Appealing to post-Christian people, by post-Christian he means people that, that have been in the church, grown up in the church, and have now left. He says, Appealing to post-Christian people on the basis of the authority of Scripture has essentially the same effect as a Muslim imam appealing to you on the basis of the authority of the Quran. You may or may not already know what it says, but it doesn't matter. The Quran doesn't carry any weight with you. You don't view the Quran as authoritative. And his point is that many people simply don't believe that the Bible is, is completely true. So telling them that, that the Bible says this, the Bible says that, is not an adequate foundation for them to believe. Instead, he argues, we should take the time to attempt to prove the historicity of events in the Bible, specifically the resurrection, right? He says it doesn't matter if some of the other stuff didn't happen, Right? Did the walls of Jericho really come falling down? Maybe not. Doesn't really matter. Did Noah build an ark? Maybe not. Doesn't really matter. Right? What matters is that we can prove that the resurrection happened. So, so don't waste your time so much opening the scripture to people, but let's just try to show people um, and prove to people the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. That's kind of his take. So... Um, here's, here's my primary problem with what he's saying and what other people have said similarly. Uh, and that is that, as we've talked about already, the Bible is not just a book, right? The Bible is nothing like the Quran. The Quran is a book written by man, right? The Bible is the living word of the living God who created you and who gives us life. God's word is living and active, Hebrews 4 tells us. It's not some 
2,000-year-old text. It is living and active today. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, you could spend years and years trying to convince somebody of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. But if that person is not cut to the heart by the Spirit-filled Word of God, they will never be saved. I mean, think about the Pharisees. How many miracles did those guys see, right? They saw blind eyes opened. They saw lame people stand up and walk. They saw dead people come to life. They saw the resurrection of Jesus. And instead of worship, what did they do? They said, we better cover this thing up because if word on this gets out, we're going to be in trouble, right? So they covered it up. It didn't matter how many miracles they saw. They didn't believe. So the Bible is our authority. I hope we agree on that. And, and we absolutely need it to understand the gospel, to know the gospel. But, but we can't stop just, just there yet. Right. Because if, if we if we just said, hey, God's word is is your authority, obey it. Let's go home. If we stop there, then we might just all become really good rule followers. Right. right? Is that the point? Nope. Um, we might become really good rule followers, but miss the whole point of God's word. You want to know what that is? What makes the Bible so wonderful, so necessary, so alive, is that God's Word reveals to us, like nothing else can, the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus Christ, His Son. Through the Scriptures, our blinded eyes are opened to behold the majesty and the beauty of God. Right? So, the reality of everyone dead in their sin outside of Jesus is that we're blind. And Jesus might be right in front of us, but we can't see Him for who He is. We cannot see and understand and comprehend the glory of Jesus and the glory of, of the gospel because we're blind. Listen, uh, listen to what 2 Corinthians Chapter 4 says, verses 3 and 4 and verse 6. Uh, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them excuse me, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God who said, let the light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, um, he's saying, you're blind. But when God saves you, and he's referencing creation here, where God, God spoke into the darkness, and he said, let there be light. And, and he spoke life into existence, right? 
So it happened at creation. That's what Paul's referencing in this passage. So you were, you were blind and dead in your sin, and God spoke into your heart and said, let there be light. And he opened your blind eyes so that for the very first time you could behold and see the beauty and the worth and the glory of the resurrected Jesus. And that's how you were saved. That's how you were saved. And church, that is why you should be reading your Bibles, right? That is why you should be opening the Word of God every day. Not so you can memorize more than the other guy. Not so that you can be a better rule follower. Not so that you can explain it better than the next guy. You should read it because through it you will behold and see the glory of Jesus. Come on. And Christians, this is what, this is what transforms us. That's why... That's why you won't hear us here at Northridge preach five steps to a better pick, pick your thing, whatever, a better marriage, better parenting, you know, better financial stewardship, uh, whatever it might be. Listen, that's because you don't need five steps. You need to see Jesus in all of his glory, revealed in God's word. You don't need a spiritual pep talk. You need to be like Moses who saw the Lord and whose face was literally glowing because he encountered the living God. Like the disciples, uh, Peter and James and John, who fell on their faces and were terrified because they saw Jesus transfigured in all of his glory. Right? That's what you need. That's what I need. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So in God's Word, we see and we behold the glory of the Word, Jesus Christ. And the more that we behold His glory, the more that we see Him for who He is, the more that we see His glorious gospel, the more we become like Him, the more we're transformed into His image. This is, this is what we call sanctification, the process of being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus so that we begin to desire Jesus more than we desire our sin and the world. Psalm 19.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. People, people always want to know, how, how can I overcome sin in my life? Don't you, don't you want to know that? Don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to experience victory over sin? Don't you want to learn how to kill sin like Romans tells us to do? Listen, the answer is not more biblical knowledge or trying harder or having more accountability partners or being, or being more educated. Listen, we overcome sin by seeing the glory of Jesus and by recognizing that the fleeting pleasures of sin and of this world cannot hold a candle to the beauty of our resurrected Lord. That's how you overcome sin in your life, church. And so, this brings us now all the way back to where we started. 
in John 17 that we read at the very beginning. Jesus prays for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Listen, living according to God's word, submitting yourself to God's word will in many cases cause the world to hate you. Did you know that? Because Jesus and his word are not from this world, right? He said that in John chapter 17. Submitting to God's word will often cause the world to hate you. Uh, that's, what, that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. So you can be a friend of God or you can be a friend of the world. But you can't be both. Right? You cannot serve two masters. Jesus tells us. So, how will we live here at Northridge Life Church? What kind of church are we going to be? And it's our confession that there is nothing that we want more, nothing that we need more than to behold the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the worth of Jesus And so we will be a people who are passionate about God's word, about hearing God's word, about preaching God's word, about obeying God's word, about delighting in God's word, and about sharing God's word with the people around us who so desperately need to hear the hope of the gospel and see the glorified, resurrected Son of God in all of His beauty and all of His majesty. That's the kind of church that we want to be. Amen? One of the ways that we, um, one of the ways that we most clearly see Jesus in His glory is by taking and celebrating communion together. It's an opportunity for us to remember Jesus. Um, we see his glory in, in his broken body, broken for us. We see, see his glory in his blood that he poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We see his glory in his defeat of death and his invitation to his church to come and commune with him now Right now, in this moment, at his table, but also for all eternity at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so we want to take that opportunity to, to remember him and to dwell on and to think about his glory and what he did and what he accomplished for each one of us. So, um, so let me read to you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, Daryl, if you would come and help. Deborah, Curtis, if you guys would uh, come and help. Um, let me read this, this well-known passage out of 1 Corinthians 11. And, uh, and we're, gonna, we're just going to end uh, this morning by celebrating um, the Lord's table together um, and celebrating Jesus, what he's accomplished for us, the reality of that. Um, and then we're going we're gonna to worship, sing, sing one more song. And then I've got a few announcements for you, so stick around 
uh, for that before you leave. First um, Corinthians 11. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm going to pray in just a minute. But I think this would be an appropriate time just to take a moment and to reflect. The Lord tells us to. Um, on your own life. And I want to encourage you to just ask the Lord to, to kindly and gently reveal to you um, if, there's, if there's anything maybe in your life that you need to repent of, that you need to turn away from and turn back to Jesus. Um, you know, as I, was, as I was thinking about and preparing this message, um, over the past few weeks, you know, the Lord, as he does, kindly and gently um, showed me some things in my own life that, that I needed to repent of. And so I think this would be an appropriate time to do that. Before you come, um, before you come, Christian believer, to partake of the Lord's table, just to take a moment and to repent if you need to um, of any sin that you know of is in your life. And, uh, and the good news is, is that, that when we confess our sin, First John says, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Listen, there's nothing that you've done that Jesus cannot cleanse you from. Period. And so we want to we wanna take time to do that and we want to just... Thank the Lord. So just take a moment. We're just going to be quiet for a moment. Um, take some time to come into his presence. And then I'll, I'll pray for us in a moment and we'll, we'll begin to come. Father, we just thank you and praise you for sending your Son on our behalf to cleanse us from sin that, that we could never have cleansed ourselves from. God, we were utterly hopeless without hope and without God in the world. But in your loving kindness and in your mercy and grace, you sent Jesus to make us clean and to make us your own so that we, we belong to you. We are sons. We are daughters. 
in your kingdom. You've adopted us into your family. And so we, all we can do is praise you, Lord. Thank you that, that, that through your word we can, we can see the glory of Jesus and his gospel. And, and, Lord, I just pray that you would give us eyes, open eyes to see, even now as we celebrate communion together, help us to see your glory. We want to see your glory so that we can become more like you, so that we can be transformed more and more into your image. God, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood spilled, shed on our behalf to wash away our sin. We praise you. We exalt you. We magnify you. We glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, when you're ready, go ahead and just begin to come. We'll celebrate together.